Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Evidence and Guidelines for COVID-19 in-Hospital Management, Putting It All Together, is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and is supported by an educational grant from Santa Fe. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining our session here. My name is Vikram Mukherjee. I'm a pulmonary critical care attending physician at the NYU School of Medicine, where I serve as the director of the medical intensive care unit. And I'm joined here by Cameron Smith. Cam? Hi, I'm Cameron Smith, um, physician assistant at Bellevue Hospital, uh, lead APP in the medical ICU. And Cam and I have worked with our team here through the throes of the pandemic and have seen COVID for the last almost three years now uh, through the various surges that our Bellevue Hospital has gone through. Right, our learning objectives for today, we're going to distinguish amongst the criteria for assessing disease severity in hospitalized patients with COVID, compose guideline-supported treatment plans for hospitalized patients with COVID, analyze clinical trial data supporting therapies for hospitalized patients. So we start with an overview on a current uh, state of the union on where we are with COVID-19 hospitalizations. And, you know, what we want to emphasize on this slide is even though we are close to three years into the pandemic, um, COVID is still very topical to uh, hospitalizations. In fact, this winter, we are looking at the triple threat of COVID admissions, influenza admissions and uh, RSV surges. Um, as you see in the slide, there have been various surges of COVID-19 hospitalizations, and as recently as this month and last month, we are still way higher than where we were back in summer of uh, uh, this year. So again, this is a timely reminder that um, we are still very much in the middle of a pandemic, and it's still important to remember to get vaccinated, to get um, the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions into place as we look uh, towards what happens over the next few months in this winter. I want to emphasize again on the vaccination question. This is a beautiful slide which shows the difference in hospitalizations between patients who are vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated. The line in the blue are hospitalizations on people who are fully vaccinated. And the one in green shows rates per 100,000 population in the patients who are not vaccinated. And as you can see here, um, there's a big splay uh, and continues to emphasize the protective effect against severe COVID-19 manifestations by timely, uh, reliable vaccine, uh, vaccine access. All right, so this slide is showing us that there are several comorbidities uh, related with risk factors for severe COVID. Um, the main one is uh, patients who are over 60 years of age. We also see this in flu. Um, that the older the patients are, the more at risk they are. Uh, additional risk factors include COPD, um, if you're overweight or obese, if you have CKD, any kind of cardiovascular disease, um, and then several others, including smoking, immunosuppression, uh, diabetes, and cancer. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we would find very useful in the hospital is to kind of predict which patients will do just fine on the floors versus which patients will need higher levels of care, a step-down unit or an IC or even worse, a ventilator or ECMO. And this uh, is a very well-validated tool that could be used in a real-world scenario where you take patient demographics and uh, have a prediction model of how 
likely the patient is to end up with severe COVID requiring ICU admissions. It takes into account uh, underlying comorbidities, um, of course, age, gender, uh, whether the patient is coming from a nursing home, underlying race, um, and whether the patient has respiratory and gastrointestinal symptoms. I do want to emphasize that this was before. This was validated before the vaccines took over. So uh, please also factor in that patients who are vaccinated end up doing much better um, in terms of risk of severe illness. Uh, do factor that in as you make these risk predictions. Okay. All right. And then, of course, uh, you know, we know the main symptoms in COVID involve the lungs, but there are several extrapulmonary manifestations of this. The ones that we see the most, um, especially with the first wave of the pandemic, are DVTs, pulmonary embolism, and then um, AKI, so damage to the kidneys during this time. But you can see really every single system can be affected by COVID. And to Cam's point, I do want to echo that, you know, we still are, even though it's been three years and close to three years into the pandemic, we're still understanding the mechanisms of disease. Uh, and, uh, you know, while we have some understanding of why patients are hypercoagulable and throw venous and arterial clots, the cardiac manifestations, whether they're an autoimmune pathway versus direct viral infiltration, the endocrinopathies, we're still very early in this disease process to understand exactly how this works and how to stop it from occurring. Ken? All right, this is a review of the NIH guidelines for the severity spectrum. Most of what we see in the ICU, of course, falls within the severe illness to critical illness category. Um, but you can see pretty much we know people that have been asymptomatic or presymptomatic. They are not showing any symptoms if they are positive. And then with a the mild illness, you can have generalized symptoms. Uh, moderate illness, you know, now our SpO2 is much lower. With severe illness, um, it is even lower than that. You can see the classification uh, criteria. The PaO2 and FiO2 are below 300. Um, on room air, and then, of course, you can have increased respirations, and then lung infiltrates the ground glass opacities, which we are used to seeing on x-ray. And then, of course, with critical illness, this is where we get into the respiratory failure, septic shock, and multi-organ dysfunction. Now, the important thing to take away is that patients in any category, whether you have had zero symptoms or been intubated, are at risk for long COVID. Thanks, Cam. And I do want to emphasize what Cam mentioned, long COVID or, you know, post-acute sequelae of COVID. Again, this is still, the jury is still out there on how, why this occurs. But as many of you know, it's debilitating in the long run. Uh, it's up to 20% of patients with uh, acute COVID, even the minim mild or pre-symptomatic COVID can develop uh, long COVID. And this manifests as neurocognitive dysfunctions, not so much of a respiratory illness, but more so of a nervous system illness with neurocognitive dysfunction with psychiatric illness long out from the acute phase of COVID. There's some early data showing that it's because of viral reservoirs of COVID, uh, of SARS-CoV-2 persisting in astrocytes and nerve cells, but how to stop it and what consequences this has on the workforce, on, uh, on economy per se, is still up to, is still very early to comment on that, but it's something that all of us have our eyes on and a lot of funding coming along to study the pathogenesis and how to stop a long COVID or post-acute sequelae of acute COVID. Now that we have overviewed or you know, reviewed the basic pathophysiology and how a patient progresses from 
an early infection from all the way from asymptomatic or presymptomatic disease and sometimes all the way to severe or critical illness, it's important for us to also review uh, the pathophysiology behind this progression of clinical disease. Um, that's important. One is because it helps us predict what happens next and also be help us target uh, countermeasures and therapeutics to a particular phase of the infection of the infectious process. So what's been well described over the last couple of years is that a SARS-CoV-2 infection has kind of a triphasic response. There's an early infection which is marked by profound SARS-CoV-2 replication. Um, the next phase is a pulmonary phase where you have a, essentially a viral pneumonia. There's some infiltration of the virus into the pulmonary parenchyma. But the third phase is important to remember that the third phase is, is essentially a dysregulated host immune response. And it's essentially a consequence of that which leads the patient to get into uh, a critical illness often with acute respiratory distress syndrome and so on. So it's really important to remember that viral replication at the early infection, which then goes into some viral pneumonias, but then the last or the third phase is the hyperinflammatory phase, which is because of a dysregulated uh, uh, host immune system response. The reason this is important to know is because the clinical signs often differ uh, in the early infection. It's a bit of a fever, a dry cough, the pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic phase. Pulmonary phases, when it starts getting a little serious, you have hypoxia, you have ground glass opacities on the chest, CT, you may have some liver dysfunction. And lastly, the ICU patients, the patients who unfortunately don't have great outcomes, are the ones who have a, a, a hyperinflammatory response. And these patients manifest by acute respiratory distress syndrome, needing mechanical ventilation, sometimes ECMO, elevated inflammatory markers, myocarditis, and so on. And you know, now that we understand the three phases, we can target our countermeasures to each of these three phases. So if the patient presents early, you would use antivirals, remdesivir, others, to be able to target and stop viral replication. If they present late in the course of the disease, uh, immunomodulators such as steroids, or uh, you know, we'll come to more of that in the later half of this talk. But immunomodulation to dampen the host inflammatory response would be the way to go uh, to avoid the badness of ARDS and cardiac failure. Now that we have an understanding of the pathophysiology and the disease severity classifications, we describe a couple of case studies. These are real-world scenarios that have evolved from the Bellevue ICU here. And we feel that, you know, going through these case studies together, reviewing the data behind them, behind the management of them, will be a nice reminder on the, the evidence-based management that lends itself to good clinical practice at the bedside. So with that in mind, I'm going to hand it over to Cam to take us through the first case. Thanks, Cam. Um, so this particular one is a 65-year-old male, uh, past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes type 2. So he presented to us in the ICU from the ED after six days of dyspnea and increased work of breathing. Um, his vitals had a slight fever, slightly elevated heart rate, um, elevated respiratory rate, and we know he has hypertension at baseline, so that is not unusual. Uh, the big thing to look at is that he had um, an SpO2 of 86% on room air. That is significantly low. Your normal ranges are supposed to be between 92 and 100, typically. Um, of course, with all of these patients, we get a chest x-ray right away and review it. These showed diffuse ground glass opacities, which is... Um, classic for COVID-19. His rapid test came back 
positive. Uh, unfortunately, he was unvaccinated. This was during the first wave of the pandemic, and we did not have vaccinations at this time. Um, labs were notable notable for um, a, a ABG of 7.2, so a bit of respiratory acidosis here. Um, white blood cells were elevated, and then elevated biomarkers. At that point, we were tracking um, LDH, D-dimer, including um, uh, D-dimer of 5,000. Uh, we were checking IL-6, uh, several others. The patient was quickly placed on high-flow nasal cannula um, at the max settings we could put him on, and he did have improvement to his SpO2, but only to 90%. Um, unfortunately, he became increasingly more tachypnic, um, use of accessory muscles, so now in respiratory distress, and um, this patient was up triage to us in the medical ICU for this increased oxygen requirement. So we'll give you some background information on NIH guidelines for therapeutic management of these patients with severe COVID. If they're requiring minimal oxygen, you can use remdesivir alone, elevated O2, add dexamethasone, or if remdesivir is not available at your hospital, you can use dexamethasone alone. And then despite what you are already doing, if they still have increasing oxygen requirements and they're having systemic uh, inflammation, then you can add varicitinib or tocilizumab to the dexamethasone. So the answer is remdesivir and dexamethasone. Um, remdesivir, simply because that was our first line and um, FDA approved uh, supportive measure, and then dexamethasone because his oxygen requirement was below 94% uh, despite giving increased um, oxygen support. All right, and then this is a review of the WHO guidelines supportive management for COVID-19. Um, of course, first things you're going to do for a patient who has a, a positive test and um, appears like they may be in distress or need to be monitored closely, you're going to want to put on a pulse oximeter um, to measure their SpO2, make sure that the SpO2 stays above 92-94%, give them supplemental oxygen should they need it, monitor for clinical deterioration because these patients can um, deteriorate very, very quickly. And then be very cautious with fluid management in these patients. Um, unless they have tissue hypoperfusion with a super high lactate, um, if you give them a significant amount of fluid, that fluid is just going to cause their respiratory distress to worsen. Thanks, Cam. Uh, that's a really nice description of what's essentially a very classic uh, case of a patient with COVID uh, who presented to the ICU. I do want to emphasize a couple of things, you know, echoing Cam's uh, thoughts about supportive management. Um, in this day and age, when we see COVID in the ICUs, we should also remember to check for flu, check for RSV. It's a particularly bad influenza season this year, so please make sure your differentials are still very broad. And also remember that, you know, a lot of patients in the ICU with COVID still have, are at higher risk for venous thromboembolism for PEs uh, and DVTs. In fact, there's Italian data showing that two out of three patients uh, of uh, with COVID in the ICU will have uh, venous thromboembolism. So keep your differentials broad. And even though COVID might, might be the primary driver of the critical illness, have some pointer of care ultrasound done, have some uh, markers to check whether there's something else underlying the, the overwhelming COVID infection. 
I'll take case two. This is again a real world scenario from the uh, initial pre-vaccination surges uh, in New York. Uh, we have a 32 year old female, 25 weeks of gestation, uh, Gravida one, parity zero, presenting to our ICU as transfer for an ECMO eval after testing positive for COVID-19. Again, this was, as Cam mentioned, in the pre, uh, in the first wave, so vaccines weren't available. Then she deteriorated clinically during the ICU stay, requiring invasive mechanical ventilation. And as you know, this is the one patient that would keep us awake at night. It's a young, otherwise healthy woman who is pregnant, and this would be our highest priority, which is why she came to Bellevue for possible ECMO. Um, a very rocky course, despite an ag aggressive conventional maneuvers uh, that have been time tested for COVID uh, for ARDS, such as lung protection, peep titration, recruitment, she was, still remained very hypoxic. And as we all know, that has significant consequences, not just on the mother, but also on the fetus. And a decision to place the patient on venovenous ECMO was taken and i'm and it, i'm sure all of you know about venovenous ecmo but briefly it takes blood out of the veins on from the internal jugular or the femoral passes the deoxygenated blood through a oxygen through a pump an oxygenator and a carbon dioxide removal machine and then pumps the blood back into the right side of the heart basically taking over the entire function of the lungs um, so this patient was placed on VV ECMO. She was cannulated, and after a two-week run of ECMO, she was improved. She improved enough to be decannulated, and uh, by God's grace, her pregnancy was preserved. She over the next few months she had a, a uneventful, uh, you know, peripartum period and delivered a healthy baby uh, around th two months or three months after uh, this ICU admission. This was one of. Uh, the few success stories we had during the first wave, and this is very close to our heart, because uh, she, she got the care that uh, that could not have been delivered in many other parts of New York City during those surges. Essentially, this is a short story, and we'll review the data behind this. Essentially, the NIS guidelines, the therapeutic management for hospitalized patients with critical COVID-19, essentially, we try to break it up into supportive care and countermeasures. We'll walk through this slide together. On the left here is the patient requires high flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, essentially a CPAP or a BiPAP. You should start thinking about uh, dexamethasone or baricitinib or dexamethasone plus TOSI. If you don't have any of those other options, dexamethasone alone should be sufficient. And if you have an immunocompromised patient, you should be thinking of adding remdesivir simply because viral replication happens for a longer period if you have an underlying immunocompromised uh, disease. In a patient who requires invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO, such as our patient, the guidelines are very clear, dexamethasone plus Barry or dexamethasone plus TOSI as well. And you should be starting these much earlier before they end up on ECMO. The correct answer is dexamethasone plus baricitinib. Um, the, this is in line with current NIH guidelines and has a couple of really good trials, which we'll review in a minute uh, to back this, uh, this route of management. Um, just reviewing the WHO guidelines again, supportive management is ex very essential in patients with critical COVID-19. Um, acute hypoxic respiratory failure, we usually start with nasal cannula, quickly upscale to high-flow nasal cannula. Uh, BiPAP has some uh, you know, uh, contradictory data to it, so if a patient isn't doing well on high-flow nasal cannula, many of us go directly to invasive mechanical ventilation. Um, as the patient develops acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, um, we uh, use uh, supportive management such as lung protective strategies, inhaled nitric oxide, PEEP strategies, recruitment, and so on. Um, and then ECMO 
is always a tool. Of course, you want to use it in patients who have uh, good prognostic outcomes. Uh, so uh, most patients who end up on ECMORE, younger, healthy patients who have single organ dysfunction and are presenting fairly early in the disease. And as Cam mentioned, conservative fluid management, uh, we try not to flood their lungs or their tissues with unnecessary fluid. So uh, a very prudent conservative fluid management is what is usually advised in an ICU setting. Cam, back to you. All right, this is a, a slide, and I know this has been um, mentioned in several studies, and of course we talk about it in the ICU all the time, but uh, as Vikram just mentioned, we don't want to have uh, fluid overload in our patients. It leads to increased um, mortality, and so we always say a dry lung is a happy lung. Okay, so ventilation management can be very complicated. But for COVID, we have um, a few guidelines that the WHO has um, set up, and we've also found them very helpful in the ICU setting. Um, the first is the tidal volume. So we want to give these patients lung protective volumes, which means um, they are somewhere between four and eight milliliters per kilogram of their uh, predicted body weight. Uh, we want to keep their inspiratory pressures low as well. Their PEEP can be high. Um, I've seen PEEP as high as uh, 20, actually, in some of our um, much, uh, much more um, obese patients. And uh, typically, your PEEP is going to be at 5. But again, with COVID, you could have it uh, quite higher. And that's mostly because these lungs become so stiff uh, that you need extra pressure to um, open up and recruit your um, alveoli for better oxygenation. Uh, the FiO2, most of these patients, we put on 100% FiO2 at first, and then we get an ABG, um, an arterial blood gas, and we wean that as able. And then... I think this is pretty common sense, but um, you definitely want to avoid vent disconnection. Sometimes thinking, you know, if a patient is in distress despite being uh, on a ventilator, that you might disconnect them and, uh, you know, bag them to um, try to re-recruit. But there's actually a very uh, high incidence of if the ventilator is disconnected that, um these alveoli just close up, and then it's very, very difficult to get them open again. Um, some patients that we've seen disconnected from ventilators only temporarily may take 30 minutes to an hour just to re-recruit their alveoli for um, proper blood gas exchange. Thanks, Cameron. That's a really important point. You know, I mean, most of our patients with severe ARDS will fit criteria for prone positioning, and you want to be doubly sure that someone's keeping a very, very careful eye on their airway and the vent or the ET tube doesn't get dislodged or disconnected as you position the patient on a, on a, uh, on a prone position. Uh, we've, um, as Cam was mentioning, it takes a long time and you can risk severe hypoxia if uh, those ventilators or ET tubes get uh, misarranged. Thanks, Cam. Back to you. Thanks, Vikram. And uh, speaking of the, the proning, you know, I really have to... Um, you know, commend our hospital in particular, and I know the other ones around who all had proning teams, um, which were very instrumental in helping to prone all of our patients uh, to help re-recruit alveoli. 
uh, during the first wave and onward. It was a very um, it was a very helpful intervention. This slide is giving guidelines from the WHO on uh, trying to prevent ventilator associated complications um, with all patients that are ventilated. You want to do a daily spontaneous breathing trial and a spontaneous awakening trial, as well as um, evaluate their RAS score, um, which is the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. So even though these patients um, may need the ventilator, you still want to give them every chance to come off of it if able. Uh, another thing that we see commonly in patients who are ventilated for a long period of time is that they acquire a, ventilated, uh, a ventilator-associated pneumonia. And so to kind of help combat this, um, we put their head of bed up to 30 to 45%, and then um, they have daily tubing exchange to prevent that. Something else we want to prevent in these patients are um, thromboembolic events. This could be uh, a DVT, a PE, um, a acute coronary. And so we will typically give these patients prophylactic. And sometimes uh, if they qualify for it, therapeutic doses of anticoagulation. We also want to avoid pressure ulcers in these patients. So whereas in the ICU, we have a lot more attention to patients, we can turn them more frequently, um, preferably every two hours. It is important to avoid these pressure ulcers if possible, because this can lead to just another major source of infection. We've seen a lot of sacral decubitus um, ulcers that just really um, wreak havoc on these patients. Um, stress ulcers, also a thing to think about for GI bleeds. Um, if your patient does not receive tube feeds within uh, an allotted period of time, then you probably want to start them on um, an H2 blocker or a PPI. We also want to avoid line-related bacteremia. And so it's really important whenever putting in lines, especially central lines in these patients, because they require several medications at once um, that are maybe not compatible in a peripheral IV, that we do everything sterilely. And we also want to minimize the time that they're in. So in your hospital, it may be different. In our hospital, um, seven days is the max amount of time that you should have in uh, a central line, and that will need to be exchanged to prevent line-related infection. We also want to be good antimicrobial uh, stewards and not use antibiotics and anti-infectives so cavalierly. These COVID patients, this is a virus, and so if they don't have a bacterial infection, they don't need antibacterials. If they don't have a fungal infection, they don't need antifungals. Um, this is something really important that I want to hit home with. And of course, we always have to review the uh, drug-related interactions with a lot of the medications we give these patients and the side effects. You know, a lot of patients who have been under sedation for a long period of time and who have been ventilated for a long period of time uh, will have an ICU-related delirium. So we want to be very cognizant of that. Um, and kind of gently um, transition them into wakefulness as possible. Uh, this slide reviews the NIH and WHO guidelines um, of patients with septic shock. I think if you're in an ICU setting, if you're in a medical setting, you should really know what shock is already. But just to review, um, we want to get fluids, but um, 
be very mindful that giving too much can really overwhelm the patients and flood their lungs. Um, so again, dry lung is a happy lung. And if they need um, consistent pressors, um, if they need blood pressure support, then putting in an arterial line will help not only uh, monitor constantly their blood pressure um, so that you can titrate these medications appropriately, but we can also um, obtain serial ABGs to see how the patient is doing on a ventilator. Uh, for our vasopressors, adults, our first line is typically norepinephrine, and um, you really can consider dobutamine if the patient has um, poor perfusion and has cardiac dysfunction at baseline. Thanks, Cam. And you know, now that we have a brief understanding of the supportive care uh, that the ICU patient with COVID-19 uh, deserves, uh, shifting gears a little bit to the countermeasures that are out there and what we can use in conjunction with the supportive care that Cam just mentioned to improve outcomes in the ICU. So what we'll go over for the next few minutes is evidence-based medications for hospital management of COVID-19, and we'll review the four main categories of uh, countermeasures, essentially antivirals, anti-inflammatories, uh, IL-6 inhibitors, and JAK inhibitors. Um, each of them have a role to play in the management. They're not exclusive to each other. And as you'll see in the evidence that we review, uh, because they work in parallel pathways, they usually are used in conjunction with each other. Uh, this slide shows the anti-inflammatory immunomodulatory therapies for COVID-19. Essentially, as we all know, there's the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which has the spike proteins on its surface and attaches to the uh, by the ACE2 receptors to the cell surfaces. Um, as a consequence to that, uh, there is a host immune system response and anti-spike antibodies are often mounted. Along with that, there are pro-inflammatory cytokines, macrophage monocyte recruitment, which ends up leading to pulmonary edema, thromboembolism, and pulmonary fibrosis. Again, part of the uh, countermeasures focus on viral replication and making sure that the SARS-CoV-2 replication itself is diminished. And part of it is going to be immunomodulation so that the dysregulated host immune system is not as uh, damaging as it possibly can be. So in that line, we'll start with the four main categories. The first one is antivirals. So, um, the first antiviral we'll discuss is a combination pill uh, of nirmatrelvir and ritonavir. And essentially, um, the indication for this is for two patients, two categories of patients, non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 at high risk for disease progression, such as older patients, immunocompromised patients, and so on, or hospitalized patients initially admitted with a diagnosis other than COVID, for example, trauma, provided that they have mild to moderate COVID-19 and at high risk for severe disease progression. Um, the mechanism, this is not a new drug. It's been there for a while. Uh, the mechanism of action, uh, it's a combination. Nirmatrelvir is a protease inhibitor, and ritonavir inhibits uh, metabolism of nirmatrelvir, so it's a uh, adjunct to that. Of note, it is not recommended for patients with severe hepatic impairment. It's otherwise a fairly drug, common drug to use. We've used it a lot, not only in the inpatient setting, but also in the outpatient setting. And the side effect profile usually is fairly safe. Uh, the dosing, it's a five-day course. Initiate treatment as soon as possible within five days of onset. Remember, it's an antiviral. So the quicker you have uh, it on board, the less the viral replication is during the first phase of COVID illness. Most uh, academic societies and uh, professional organizations have used this in their guidelines 
to prevent uh, severe illness. Um, Kyle, over to you for the next antiviral, please. Thanks, Vikram. The next antiviral we're going to talk about is remdesivir. So the indication, it's FDA approved for patients who are hospitalized um, with COVID or even what? patients who are not hospitalized um, and with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are at high, high risk progression to severe disease. So, you know, we were talking about patients earlier slides that have um, multiple comorbidities. And so this is the population we're talking about here. Um, mechanism, it's a nucleoside analog of ATP, which we know is really important for energy in the body. And um, it essentially inhibits the um, RNA polymerase in the COVID virus. And now it's not recommended typically for patients who have decreased kidney function. So your GFR, if it's below 30, you're probably not going to use this on your um, ESRD patients or chronic kidney uh, disease patients um, who are in the later stages. It, it is contraindicated if you've had a hypersensitivity reaction to remdesivir before or any components in it, and you want to discontinue this medication if there's a clinically significant hypersensitivity reaction. Uh, you want to initiate this treatment as soon as possible after the diagnosis of COVID. Um, and then you can see the administrative doses. We are going to give 200 milligrams IV first on the first day. And then you're going to follow that by four days for a total of a five-day course. Um, sometimes you can extend these courses. I know earlier in the pandemic, we extended the courses up to seven to 10 days. It really just depends on the patient. And, you know, we work really closely with um, with our uh critical care pharmacists on this one. They have great recommendations. Thanks, Kim. And just to echo what Kim is saying, uh, remdesivir is still the first FDA-approved uh, countermeasure for COVID-19, and we have a lot of trust in this in the right patient population. Of note, it is an IV formulation. The uh, medication we mentioned earlier can be given oral. So outpatient therapy can be a logistically uh, challenging a mechanism, but it is something that we have used a lot, both in the outpatient and inpatient setting. The data behind this is robust, Kim. This is the ACT-1 study um, showing the time to recovery between remdesivir versus a placebo. Uh, patients were in two categories, ones who did not require supplemental oxygen and ones that did. And the takeaway from this is that there was improvement in recovery time seen purely in the patients who needed oxygen support. Um, but uh, no significant difference seen in patients who did not require supplemental oxygen. And then this is the simple severe study uh, showing the uh, efficacy of remdesivir uh, in either giving a five-day course versus a 10-day course. And the takeaway from this is that while there was significant clinical improvement um, with these patients giving remdesivir period, there was not a statistically significant difference in giving a five-day course versus a 10-day course. Vikram, what do you think about the simple moderate uh, study with patients um, with moderate illness? Very similar to what was shown in the simple severe study, the simple moderate study didn't back a uh, 10-day course of remdesivir. There were no hard clinical uh, improvement in patients who received a longer course, 10 days versus a five-day course of remdesivir. Moving along from antivirals to immunomodulators, the game changer here, honestly, is dexamethasone. And Cam, back to you about the role that dexamethasone plays in our critically ill patients. All right, thanks, Victor. So <laughs> dexamethasone, very widely used um, throughout different illnesses. 
but for the NIH guidelines, the indication is patients who are requiring supplemental oxygen. So we've given this multiple, multiple times um, throughout the different COVID waves. Um, it suppresses the migration of neutrophils, decreases lymphocyte culinary proliferation, not recommended for hospitalized patients who don't require supplemental oxygen. That's just um, not needed. And then it's contraindicated in patients with systemic fungal infections. So if you think of dexamethasone, the side effects, it's going to increase your blood sugars. Bacteria love to feed on um, sugar, and so it's just going to exacerbate um, any kind of bacterial infections, but especially fungal infections. Um, it can cause elevated blood pressure, uh, heart problems, um, can cause adrenocortical insufficiency, uh, increased susceptibility to infection, which we've discussed, um, possible cataracts and glaucoma, uh, possible optic nerve damage. You know, you can see some of this kind of tracks with someone who has uncontrolled diabetes as well. Um, and then the administration typically will give six milligrams IV once daily, but we will consider more if they um, require a higher level of respiratory support. Uh, we've, I think we've done as high as, and Vikram, correct me if I'm wrong, but I wanna say we've done as high as 20 in some patients and then done 20 for five days, 10 for five days, and done a, a taper for patients who require even more oxygen. Yeah, right, Cam, and that stems from the pre-COVID DEXA ARDS study, where uh, the trial dose was 20 milligrams IV followed by a quick taper. Um, we are very cognizant that, you know, because of the hyperimmune phase of COVID illness, uh, dexamethasone has a role to play, but the side effect profile can be pretty expansive as well, like Cam is mentioning, you know, hypertension, hyperglycemia, but also in the setting of paralytics and neuromuscular blockade, you have significant critical care myopathy. So we do start high or higher when the patient has critical illness sometimes, but also make sure that we taper it off in a very timely manner. Thanks, Cam. Back to you. All right. So this is the recovery trial. Um, and so giving dexamethasone uh, was actually associated with lower mortality um, among patients who were mechanically ventilated. Um, or receiving just oxygen alone, but not for those receiving no baseline respiratory support. So, you know, just expanding on what we talked about in a bullet point on the last slide, which is if someone doesn't need um, supplemental oxygen, they don't need dexamethasone. Thanks, and I do want to emphasize that, you know, because the reason why that, it's not statistically significant, but it's almost there. The confidence intervals on this graph, as you can see, are 0.91 to 1.55. And the uh, Probable reason why that's happening is because in the setting of steroids, there can be uncontrolled viral replication because your immune system isn't working as good, and that can lead to poor outcomes. We've seen in other coronaviruses such as MERS and SARS-CoV-1 uh, that using steroids early in the disease in non-hypoxic patients can have worse outcomes. So be very careful that DEX and other steroids should be used only when the patient needs respiratory support as hypoxic, on the vent, on ECMO, and so on. The next big category of um, immunomodulators working towards the host immune system uh, are two in number, tocilizumab and sarilumab. We'll quickly review the data behind them. Essentially, tocilizumab, or TOSI as we call it, is uh, IL-6 inhibitor. Uh, it can be used for hospitalized patients who are receiving steroids and hypoxic who are critically ill, requiring non-invasive, invasive mechanical ventilation or echo. 
So it's an adjunct to uh, systemic corticosteroids in critically ill patients. The mechanism, as we mentioned, it binds specifically to both soluble and membrane-bound IL-6 receptors, thereby inhibiting the inflammatory cascade that is so prevalent in, in critically ill patients. It's not recommended in patients who have liver disease, liver failure, and of course, contraindicated in patients who have hypersensitivity reactions. The immune system is so heavily dampened by double immunomodulators, Dex and Tosi. You know, as we just mentioned, you should be keeping your uh, radar up for uh, secondary fungal infections, secondary bacterial infections. There are two big trials on tocilizumab in the critical care setting. The first one is Impacta, which compared tocilizumab versus placebo in patients with COVID-19 pneumonia. Again, really well-designed, international, randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled phase three trial. And essentially, it looked at patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19 pneumonia and uh, divided them into two arms, uh, well-matched arms, tocilizumab plus standard of care versus placebo plus standard of care, with the primary endpoint being patient, uh, deterioration of these patients. So cumulative proportion of participants requiring invasive mechanical ventilation or dying within 28 days of uh, enrollment. Um, the good news is that primary endpoint was met. Patients who received tocilizumab compared to placebo had a lower frequency of ending up on the ventilator or dying at day 28. This was clinically significant, 12% versus close to 20%, and statistically significant as well. Of note, however, this didn't quite translate into a quicker hospital discharge or quicker improvement to clinical status, but it did also show that there was a reasonably safe, a good safety profile in terms of there wasn't a difference in secondary bacterial or fungal infections in the tocilizumab part. The second study, which is of note, is the REMAP-CAP study. Again, uh, tocilizumab, sarilumab versus usual care, essentially showing that there is an improvement in survival if you use these immunomodulators in addition to standard of care. This wasn't a superiority trial. It, they were using either TOSI or SARI, and there is really no data showing one of them is superior to the other. Um, the next immunomodulator, which we'll review quickly, is baricitinib. Again, this is uh, the evidence behind this has evolved over the last two years. Um, the mechanism of action is that it prevents phosphorylation of key proteins and therefore leads to dampening the immune activation and inflammation. Again, falling into the big category of an immunomodulator, it's FDA approved for hospitalized patients with COVID-19 requiring supplemental oxygen, non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Therefore, most of our critically ill patients will fit criteria for this. Uh, not recommended if you already have underlying immunosuppression, such as a low lymphocyte count, low neutrophil count, or if you have underlying kidney disease. Um, and again, contraindications are, of course, if you have active TB, which could go completely wild if you use uh, such a potent immunomodulator as baricitinib is. The data behind that, uh, remember, Act 1 was for remdesivir. Act 2 was is for baricitinib, um, uh, essentially comparing baricitinib plus remdesivir versus remdesivir in severe COVID-19. Of note, uh, steroids were not used in either, either of these arms. Uh, so just keep in mind that this wasn't steroids plus baricitinib, not double immunomodulators, just a single one. And as you can see here, there is a trend towards improvement in mortality. There is an improved uh, chance of improvement in clinical status at day 15 when you use the combination of bari plus remdesivir compared to placebo plus remdesivir alone. So essentially the point being, um, you know, when you have critical illness from COVID-19, you should be thinking 
heard not just about subordinate management, but also about these new immunomodulators that have come to play over the last few months. Um, back to you, Cam, uh, for the final summaries. All right, so our main take-home points. Uh, what do we know? We know that vaccinations work. Uh, we see patients coming into the hospital now who may have COVID-19, but no symptoms because they have been vaccinated. So it's very, very important to get vaccinated, to get boosted. It's going to um, significantly decrease your chance for uh, severe and critical illness. Completely agree, Cam. And, you know, and the old proverb of, uh, you know, prevention is better than cure, keeping patients safe. And, you know, we know that the vaccines, there's tons of data showing that it prevents badness from COVID-19. It might not be great in preventing the infection, but it definitely does a great job in preventing severe uh, and obviously fatal disease. So vaccines won 100% as the first line of defense, along with, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions such as, you know, thinking about masking back again, given the surges and the, the variants that are continuing to wreak havoc in certain parts of the country, being a bit more sensitive about mass gatherings. Um, I know all of us are very tired of this being in this pandemic, but the truth is that uh, the, the, there is still an ongoing surge, and this time it's with influenza, with other respiratory viruses such as RSV. So the more we can prevent patients and educate the community from being sick enough to come into the hospital, uh, the better care we can provide to the ones who, you know, might not have the defense with a vaccine, the immunocompromised, the stem cell transplants, which might not, the patients who might not do well, even despite having, uh, uh, being compliant with their vaccines. So again, just want to emphasize vaccines first and foremost. Um, just continuing along the trend, the rest of the management, once you have a patient in the ICU, is triphasic, right? You have supportive care, the beautiful vent management, fluid management that CAM support, CAM described, that coupled with antivirals, uh, remdesivir, uh, and others in that spectrum. And then, of course, uh, the uh, immunomodulators that we talked about. So it's a kind of a triphasic approach, supportive management, antivirals, immunomodulators, which uh, have the evidence behind them to support care. Um, Ken, back to you, please. And I thank you so much, Vikram, for, for all of that, um, especially regarding the masks. Uh, you know, we want to protect others. You know, you may be extremely healthy, but not everybody around you is. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that we go into this field um, of medicine because we're lifetime learners. And you know, part of lifetime learning is that you're keeping up with studies, you're keeping up with best treatment scenarios. And so there are still so many um, studies to be done on COVID. There's still so much more data to um, rifle through. And there's still so much to learn about long COVID and the eventual repercussions of, you know, what, you know, getting, um, you know, one strain versus another. Uh, so, we're we're still going to always be learning about this. It's still very new. I agree, Kevin. And, you know, I think it's very important that we keep up. It's still very new to keep up with the evolving evidence. There's still a mountain of evidence that continues to be, uh, you know, published and presented. And it's it behooves all of us to be very aware and up to date. And you know, change our practice patterns in with the backing of the evidence that ensues. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we we want all of us, all of you, to be safe. And you know, thank you for joining this session. This concludes our program. Thank you, Vikram, and thanks to our audience for participating today. Be sure to click on the continue button below the slides to earn your CE CME credit. 
You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.